Hey everybody, this is Joshua Heston. And I'm Lisa Martin. And this is the Dark Ozarks on the Branson Podcast Network. We're an exploration of everything that's dark in history, mysteries, the paranormal, and everything else. We explore the noir, the unknown, cryptozoology, UFOs, paranormal, and all the dark stuff that happens in the Ozarks. You can find Dark Ozarks on Branson Podcast Network on Facebook under Dark Ozarks, as well as our YouTube channel, Dark Ozarks. We'll leave no stone unturned to bring you the dark history, mysteries, and legends of the Ozarks. Welcome to the Dark Ozarks. We're discussing the dark history of the Eastern Arkansas Ozarks, from pirates and steamboats to secrets in the swamps, riots, and more. We will get back to that in a minute, but first we want to remind you that the Dark Ozarks podcast is now available on Branson Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Substack, or about any other podcast platform. So many people may be surprised to hear that there were so many pirates and notorious serial killers operating in the Ozarks, among other surprises. What do you think are the biggest surprises? I think people may, may be shocked by how far back these nefarious activities go. We oftentimes don't associate <clears throat> terrible crimes with the good old days, the old-timey past. Uh, as well as just a, a an understanding of our rich river culture and how much the river culture impacted not only the Ozarks, but also connected the Ozarks to the rest of the world. We will return to the things you didn't know happened in the Ozarks, but first we want to invite you to like, follow, and subscribe to Dark Ozarks on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube as well as your favorite podcast platform. We also invite you to become a Dark Ozarks subscriber on Facebook. On the Dark Ozarks Facebook page, click subscribe, have your login information ready, and join Dark Ozarks behind the scenes for only $4.99 per month. Your $4.99 per month subscription allows you to come with us on paranormal investigations, deep dive research, and topics too controversial for public view. The next 100 subscribers will be entered in the drawing for a free Dark Ozarks t-shirt and an exclusive signed first-run copy of the book Dark Ozarks, The Spook Light. Subscribe today to be entered in the drawing. And now you can get Dark Ozarks t-shirts for sale at darkozarks.com and paranormalsciencelab.com. We also encourage you to check out Always Buying Books in Joplin, Missouri, in person and online on Facebook and at the website alwaysbuyingbooks.com for all of your reading needs, including a large section on the paranormal, history, and more. Not to mention, the building is haunted. Tell Bob and Elise that we sent you. We also want to thank Beard Engine Brewing Company in Alba, Missouri. Beard Engine Brewing is the only English-style brewery in Missouri and has been twice named Missouri's best brewery by the Missouri Brewers Association. Great beer and great food in a historical building with the Noir past. And yes, their building is also haunted. Tell Nate and Tiff that we sent you. <clears throat> oh, good, good stuff. Uh, I, like I said uh, earlier, I'm... I'm really wanting a grilled peanut butter and jelly sandwich with a stout and as soon as anytime i ever get to go into always buying books i go straight to the esoteric section and uh thanks to uh bob's curation i'm never disappointed 
No, not at all. And uh, well, we're going to have to do that pretty pretty quickly. Yes. Oh, for our live folks, <clears throat> um, May fifth, Cinco de Mayo. Yes. And uh, um, Hollister, you're in Hollister. State of the Ozarks will be hosting uh, our season kickoff for the first Friday Art Walk, and we're going to be having a Bard's Circle storytelling circle of uh, writers and authors, and that will include uh, Dark Ozarks. Yes, it will. Uh, both of us are going to be there. Yes, <laughs> yes, we will. There will be a. We'll get a um, uh, event uh, posted on uh, Facebook, obviously for the art walk, but also for uh, our corner of the uh, of the art walk. And the event is free. The public is welcome and invited. And uh, so we hope to see you there. It's going to be a good opportunity to come down, visit, talk to us, uh, and this is like all of our dark ozarks events this is a very informal interactive space and that you do not have to be to feel uncomfortable about coming up to a table and talking with the the the, the writers not at all we we rarely bite <laughs> rarely <laughs> uh, but and, <clears throat> you know it is it is one of those things um simply the celebration of the written word and the celebration of the topics at hand is a very communal experience. And if you're a, a, you know, a writer, if you're interested in talking about craft, that sort of thing, feel free to come out. We're gonna have our, we'll be there, several other writers, regional writers will be there as well. It's gonna be fun. It will, I'm looking forward to it. So where do you wanna dive into? Uh, quakes or pirates? I think quakes. I I think earthquakes, <clears throat> earthquakes, maybe even earthquakes and natural disasters. And as a as a quick primer on this, we are going to be dealing with a lot of Ozarks borderlands in this episode. So <clears throat> for the purists or for the people who are still unsure about where the Ozarks begin and end, we will be dealing with river spaces to such a large degree. Some of those river spaces, uh, like the White River, the Osage River, uh, penetrate well into uh, the, the, the topography of the Ozark Mountain Plateau. Others, <clears throat> like particularly the, uh, the most notable, obviously, the Mississippi River and the Missouri River, to a large degree frame the northern and eastern edges of the Ozarks, with some exceptions. There's a uh, topographic geologically, there's a portion of the Ozarks that are in Illinois, separated by the Mississippi River. Mm -hmm. And you could argue that some people would really take me to task on this, but I've driven through the Ozark Hills that are on the north side of the Missouri River, uh, between predominantly between. Uh, Jefferson City and Herman, and you drive through that space. If you're, if you, you know, get a burr under your saddle for me saying that the Ozarks are in that space, go up there, go to Herman, Missouri, cross the Missouri River, and then drive to Jefferson City. And in very short order, you'll be going, wait one second, I am driving through the Ozarks, even though it's technically across the river. 
it's across the river, but geology <clears throat> went a little far further north there. So it did. Uh, it did. And these rivers uh, at times will cut through the plateau. Yes, and in in the in the riverbeds, might you know kind of migrate. They 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 waltz a little bit over time, including the Mississippi. So very much so, and that's something that prior to um, some very extensive river control uh, with the Army Corps of Engineers uh, mm -hmm. on the Mississippi River. We'll, we'll specifically talk about the Mississippi River. I know there's a lot of management with the Missouri River as well, but prior to extensive 20th century river management, uh, the Mississippi River was all over the place. The Mississippi River ebbed and flowed and moved uh, folks, literally cases of early settlers wait, you know, landing on their homestead, building their farm, and in the middle of the night, getting up to find out that a Mississippi flood had put them in another state. That or an island in the middle of the channel <laughs> or something. Um, and people were so used to the fact that basically the Mississippi is a very calm river these days. It's, uh, <laughs> you know, it flows slowly. It's not as deep as it used to be. Uh, it's wider and the, and that is part of that river management to slow the, the river down. Uh, a good example of this, and we've, we've covered this in articles on our various platforms before, um, for people who are having a hard time conceiving of this, in the early days of uh, St. Louis, um, they, they would have festivals on the ice in the winter to the point they'd have 10, 15,000 people on the ice in the river and have restaurants and dance halls and almost a, you know, a town itself until the ice started moving. And um, you, you had to, when the ice started moving, you had to recognize how it sounded to get off of the ice in time where you would find yourself down river or in the, um, or in the water. Or in the river. <clears throat> Definitely in the days before safety protocols. Ah, it, it's even for me, and I like to live on the edge. That's hard to wrap my head around. I I think I would have been unbelievably nervous at any point out on that on that ice. I, for me, these great American waterways, <clears throat> whether regardless of location, these great American waterways are unbelievably special. They hold a magic of their own. They, from a from a cultural standpoint, as well as obviously a natural resource standpoint, have dramatically impacted the interior of America and dramatically impacted uh, the Ozarks in uncountable ways. Predominantly for us, in terms of bringing uh, settlement and bringing various things, it, as we were going as we was going over notes today. There was something that I thought of <clears throat> um, way over in the south, south central Missouri Ozarks at Turner Spring. There is the remnants of Turner Mill, and uh, and all that's left is the wheel, the mill wheel. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's metal, 
and it's massive and it's standing there like some sort of misplaced ferris wheel in the middle of the forest and i, I remember seeing it for the first time and just going how how on earth did they get this material here well you know, there's there, there's one of two ways. It either came by rail or it came by steamboat. Exactly. And 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 this is this is nothing new. I mean, it's it's interesting because that kind of experience is replicated around the world in various places. You know, things you know look at and people say, how did that happen? A prime example really is the Great Pyramids in Egypt. Mm -hmm. people trying to figure out how how they got materials there until they figured out that the Nile had moved and when they were built the river was 400 yards away from the pyramids and mm -hmm. they've recently in the last few years found papyruses uh, documenting um, basically invoicing invoices and so forth of um, where materials were being brought in to a port right there, which now you don't see evidence of. So, we, you know, people look around and say, how did they do this? Well, same, same way the, the, the <clears throat> wheel got there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and something that was, that was brought up on a video I was watching ages ago now, but something that has drastically impacted the uh, the future of North America at the time of settlement is that the North American continent has so many navigable rivers. Yes. Um, very, we're very fortunate in that regard. Mm -hmm. And, and of course, in the late mid later 19th century, <clears throat> river riverboat traffic was was surpassed by railroads, which created their own mystique. But those, those, <clears throat> the railroads likely would never have been built crisscrossing from industrial center and port center to industrial center and port town had the riverboats not originally established those thriving uh, cities, really. Um, that, the foundations of places like uh, Paducah and and St. Louis. Yeah, that's it, it, very true, especially at least until you get to the Mississippi. Um, then by that point, the railroads were established enough, and that's when you get, you know, out west. But um, mm. it, it was by river that, you know, transportation and exploration was forged yes. um, and the Ozarks borders a number of important waterways or has them running through them um, very much so, very much so. <clears throat> I think um, in that respect um, let, let's let's talk about a little event just a, a little event that happened in 1811 and 12 <laughs> the new Madrid earthquakes and yes. this is, of course, <clears throat> happening at such an early juncture point for the nation, mm -hmm. and 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 really happening at a 
at a time and in a location <clears throat> in which population was comparatively very sparse. And, <laughs> and at the same time, the earthquakes were devastating. And there was not just one of them. There were multiple earthquakes that... There were five major ones over about two months, but in total, with all of the aftershocks, in a in less than two years, you had twenty thousand earthquakes. You start doing the math, and three hundred sixty-five days in a year, two years, roughly seven hundred days, twenty thousand. You're having a, you're having. <clears throat> An earthquake or some sort of aftershock every few hours. If that's not going to put put you uh, over the edge with anxiety, I'm not sure what would. Absolutely not. And this was, uh, you know, uh, it's just to a degree. It's obviously New Madrid earthquakes of 1811 to 1812 are not part of our forgotten. They are documented, but just in terms mm -hmm. of public consciousness, this event is is not nearly as well known as other natural disasters. True, and, and it's very unsettling because certainly for me, who has grown up in the general region, with the with the understanding that earthquakes are something that happens out in California. Uh, earthquake we're safe from earthquakes that's not going to happen here and there's this extraordinary fault line that runs up through um essentially uh north eastern arkansas the missouri boot heel into illinois mm -hmm. and it has very fortunately been quite quiet um since this time for the most part, I have experienced uh, two earthquakes in my life in central Illinois. Uh, one of them I was actually unaware of, but I was out on the back porch when it happened. My sister was aware of it. Uh, she was in the house and saw the things, the curtains actually moving a little bit from that. And then one other earthquake in the 2003, I think, I think the summer of 2003 might have been the summer of 2002 one of the two we can look it up that was unbelievably unnerving so i've been in, into in a, in a region that one does not associate with earthquakes but seismologists estimate that the 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 major series of earthquakes that began in 1811 um, was an 8.0 on the richter scale Mm -hmm. And there was documentation of having felt the New Madrid earthquakes from uh, the East Coast. Uh, there, was, there was church bells that rang in Philadelphia from the tremor. And they say that they felt tremors in Washington, D.C. even. Uh, all the way to the Rocky Mountains, to southern Canada, to northern Mexico. And so... This is an event, this is a natural disaster, cataclysmic event that literally shook two thirds of the continent. Yes. And there were very few people around. Now, even St. Louis, which was a, the largest 
city in the region had about 5,000 people at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, a small, you know, small city in today's mm -hmm. standards. Um, and very few you know, people right in the earthquake zone, but you had New Madrid and, um, and a few settlements. And I think it's really interesting, the firsthand descriptions, you know, you grow up hearing about the earthquake and you think, you know, it, and even hearing that it was so, such a strong earthquake, but you start reading what people actually saw and it really, it, it puts it in a different light. Uh, it's something out of a sci-fi movie almost. It is because it's, <clears throat> it just, it, first of all, it is a level of cataclysmic violence that's very difficult for us to wrap our heads around. Mm -hmm. More so, I think, for the, the individuals who live through it, because it, it just, it destroyed everything. And, 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 and it just changed the landscape to the point and everything was billowing sulfur. Uh, yeah. All the descriptions d discuss that. Uh, fogs <laughs> of sulfur, basically. Um, and then over the course of the first two months, you had five major quakes that each one was successfully stronger. So that the fifth one in, in February of 1812 was actually the strongest. And um, I think my the, the description that actually stuck with me the most was a surveyor who was coming down to the area from St. Louis to, to report on the damage was caught on the road right at New Madrid when that, the, the strongest uh, quake happened. And the part of his description that stuck with me was that uh, a black liquid rushed through it down the road and to the depth of his horse's belly. Yes. I mean, this is, <laughs> this is apocalyptic. This is an apocalyptic experience. Yes. There... <clears throat> The, the shifting in the geography around the New Madrid area <clears throat> was so much so that the majority of deaths that took place were from drowning. They, yes. These homesteads, portions of towns, in some cases entire towns, were rapidly flooded by a Mississippi River that was being reoriented. The, and to wrap your head around that, the largest river in the nation is being moved out of its riverbed into a new riverbed overnight. In, yeah, instantaneously. And at and, one point, it created waterfalls on the Mississippi. Yeah. That uh, was destroyed a number of boats. Yeah, I think a couple dozen, if I remember right. Uh, 28. And okay. uh, at the New Madrid Falls, which prior to the earthquake, there was no New Madrid Falls. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you go from, uh, you know, and these were <clears throat> um, the fact that there were 
um, docks. The the town had docks. There were 19 boats tied to the docks that were ripped away from their moorings. Um, there were, of course, dead livestock everywhere. There was dead wildlife everywhere. There was the wreckage of settlement and town everywhere. And there was the wreckage of of the, the boats everywhere. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of refugees. A lot of refugees. Um, uh, in fact, um, one town, I believe, was what, 30 miles away, uh, Prairie. I just I went blank. Um, it um, it was so devastated they never could rebuild it, and um, they the, who the survivors walked to New Madrid, hoping to find help, to find the survivors there, uh, basically in the in the woods and makeshift tents. Yes, and how mm, I mean personally disheartening this had to have been i mean you know you survive all of this everything that you've built and this isn't something that you just walked in and purchased the these were settlements these were homesteads that these individuals had built themselves mm -hmm. yes <laughs> and with that level of personal investment to have it be destroyed and then make a essentially an emergency on foot or on horseback track to try to escape the devastation reach your place of quote-unquote safety and find out that it's destroyed too yes well i mean it was it changed things so much that a lot of the people who were coming in settling were coming in um either just on their own and then um <clears throat> they were just starting uh, later on getting land grants from the government and they had to change people's grants because for many of them the land no no longer was there it was underwater or whatever uh, and, and, and uh, it was you know, go ahead i was just say you know basically we talk about the fall of rome i mean it was that it was rome did not disintegrate in the way that that area disintegrated overnight no, it, it did not. I mean, it just to mm, get a, a sense, uh, the, the quakes affected more than a million square miles and specifically more than 16 times the area that was affected by the San Francisco earthquake of 1906. That, that's a little bit of perspective. It is. It is, and, and and Crowley's Ridge wouldn't be named Crowley's Ridge if it weren't for the 1811 earthquake. That's true, it created it. Um, and, um, <laughs> and, 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 and Benjamin Crowley was, uh, was uh, Crowley was one of those that uh, was coming out for a land grant and came out and found out that it no longer existed <laughs> because <laughs> of the earthquake. And so he ended up going south and and building on the ridge and, and ultimately get you know getting his land grant moved there and <clears throat> i can just imagine coming into the area thinking i have the you know, have my plot of land and see you know finding all of this and i'd find high ground too 
Oh, 100%. And th there is a, hmm, there's this, this space, which is really within that fascinating threshold of Ozarks to Delta, mm -hmm. Ozark to River Delta space. And I had the opportunity to, um, to be out there uh, and spend some time in that and within that space, it is uniquely, it's uniquely evocative, but there's something very powerful. In some ways, I would say simultaneously, very, uh, very comforting and very uh, unsettling at the same time. And for me, <clears throat> of course, the, the Delta land today is very, is rich cropland. Yes. Uh, not dissimilar to the cropland that I grew up um, around in central Illinois, the corn and soybeans. And then you you come out of the 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 rocky limestone karst of the far eastern Ozarks, Missouri Ozarks in this case, and descend into almost instantaneously descend into the delta. Mm -hmm. One moment you're in the the Rocky Limestone Karst, it is hardwood forest, it is cedar glade, uh, the roads are curvy and windy, and then you begin a very sudden descent, and at the bottom of the hill, it opens into flat as the pancake delta all the way to the Mississippi River. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, all of, the, all of the roads run east and west, north and south, Yes. Uh, it is uh, Flatlanders. completely in the middle of Flatland. And then just several miles into that, there is the ridge. And I had the opportunity to spend some time and actually hike on the far northern point of Crowley's Ridge. And it's massive. I mean, it, it dominates the horizon. Mm -hmm. But especially when you're in the the far northern tip of it, um, you 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 just you see all of it in it, you know, rising up out of the out of the the ground. And as you're driving up uh, northeast to toward Cape Girardeau, you will encounter small small versions of Crowley's Ridge. Uh, not a ridge per se, but a hill of a similar height mm -hmm. sitting there. And you're you're looking at it. And this was this was the unsettling moment for me. I'm sitting there looking at it and I'm going, it's like, even though I'm in my truck and I'm on solid ground and I'm on a blacktop road and I'm surrounded by you know early spring cornfields, I feel like I'm in the ocean. And here are these strange floating islands almost above me. Like, oh, welcome to Pandora. Um, <laughs> and it's very disorienting in that sense. It's sort of a strange metaphysical sense. It's very awe-inspiring. And then your mind contextualizes what you're in and you're going, there was a point I would be 20 or 30 feet below the surface of the river mm -hmm. and these are islands they don't look like islands 
these are islands. These are islands from a space in which there is no longer water. Mm -hmm. Because it's moved to the east. Yes, and, and gone down. And it is a it is a glimpse into a primeval version of North America that of course is now surrounded by modernity, but it's very, it's a very unique experience as your as your mind begins to wrap itself around the space and what the space meant. And and, and of course a, a reference to a much earlier epic when uh, you know, we were we would have been experiencing even more cataclysmic events than the 1911 New Madrid earthquake, but earthquakes, but it also begins to wrap, you know, to the, the context around what these 1811 settlers and pioneers were facing. True. Now, one added layer, psychological layer to what they were dealing with is, and this isn't talked about often with in connection with the quake because people just focus on the earthquake itself, is that there was another natural event going on at the same time that certainly cast a pall over all of this, even, you know, uh, in an equivalent manner to the sulfur pall that, that was uh, thrown up. And that is that there was a comet in the sky and actually probably one of the largest comets that has been recorded and it, it was called the great, the great Comet of 1811 or Napoleon's Comet because uh, in Europe, it was said that the comet foretold his uh, ill-fated decision to invade Russia. Yes. <clears throat> the, the fact that it was, you know, the head of the comet, or the, the cloud um, of the comet was, was purportedly a million miles long, 50% larger than the sun. In a in a sky devoid of quote unquote light pollution, it had to have been extraordinary. It had to be a phenomenal sight, and then for this to happen, and it was still in the, it was still visible in the sky when the earthquake started. And it in in it, it created a a very unique social um, occurrence. Mm -hmm. and one that, especially when you when you take into account the level of essentially disaster trauma that had occurred uh, mm -hmm. on, on the people, it really begins to make sense. It, there was a <laughs> a uh, a sudden rise in quote unquote earthquake Christians. Yes, uh, not Quakers, the earthquake Christians. Yeah. And uh, membership at the uh, local Methodist and Baptist churches skyrocketed. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was uh, almost a mm, end of the world conspiracy theory 
being mm-hmm. played out. And that it continued, and, and to some degree, you could argue that it perhaps gave some level of context, not necessarily good context, but existent context to the devastation that they had gone through. Oh, I, I think I think so, and certainly, um, you know, in a psychological terminology, seen as a, as a, a coping mechanism and and catharsis, and um, and then as as time went on, and even though the the quites were continuing in thousands, um, that when the the most severe ones subsided then slowly that surge of earthquake Christians started to subside once I guess they realized, I guess we're we're not going to die after all. Um, Or or not from the end of the world. There might be plenty of other things that will kill us, but it's not going to be the the end of times. Makes me think of the Simpsons movie in in, in the bubble and I'm all running from the bar to the church and vice versa. <laughs> which is fair, which apparently took place in Springfield, Missouri. So there you go. <laughs> there you go. But uh, um, it, uh, it, it also gives a glimpse into sort of the atmosphere that would have lingered you're in a very, and we talk about rugged area, but even more so at this point, um, with a vacuum of support. Um, and it tended to, I think, lend itself to more lawlessness, um, which you know was still an issue on the frontier at that point in the area. But suddenly you had even less organization and less social reigning in of behavior. And then it's also this, um, these events that ultimately gave rise to the first tales of the Arkansas wild man. True, <clears throat> which it, it is honestly the, the lore surrounding the Arkansas wild man is a little furry pun intended mm-hmm. uh in the sense that uh, of course this is pre-1950s bigfoot sasquatch sightings yes uh, in terms of it's of course even before the blue man in in the central missouri yeah. arts right the blue man was first uh talked about and cited in the in the mid-1860s and you started having sightings in after the earthquakes and it started being reported in newspapers by the late 1820s. Some people will say, oh, they're just making it up, it's sensationalism with it, 19th century journalism, etc." cetera. Um, I've heard some people say, well, it was reported in this paper or that paper, not even in the region, you can't believe that. But a lot of those stories, they were printed in the region, and then they they uh, uh, were printed across the nation. You find the same story 
often in in that time period being repeated and they and you can see how far it went because it starts out in the locality and two days later it's in a paper 300 miles away and it keeps going and so um but there are documented um expeditions to 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 look for what's going on down there as well as reports of ranchers and farmers encountering uh, wild men who in the early years they attributed to being feral people um, yeah. and there were you know people would talk about people being so nervous after the earthquakes that they you know basically had nervous breakdowns is, is how we would describe it today and um, and fled the area and, and were believed to have gone into hiding. And to me, this is really this is a really interesting um, psychosocial analysis across the board because we we have the possibility, and I think that something that oftentimes does not get accounted for in the settlement of America, you had thousands and thousands of individuals moving west mm -hmm. uh, into these spaces. And many of them, uh, to put it succinctly, had were, you know, properly together um, in terms of their faculties. Some of them were not. No, and, and we're going to talk about a couple of those later. Yes. And it, it creates a strata of essentially wild people mm -hmm. within this within this space, and we we uh, you know we we lament uh, you know crime sprees and crime rates of today without appreciating the fact of essentially how tame our society is, comparatively speaking, to earlier iterations, because there was some, there was some wild stuff. Definitely, um, and that, uh, that may, that shock people when they, they find out. And, and, and just looking at it with everything going on, I think it's very, likely that you did have people kind of going feral uh, and hiding out mm -hmm. um, and eventually then running into people again. Um, yeah. No, it, you think of it no different than soldiers in World War II, you know, who were on islands that, you know, stayed out there another 20, 30 years thinking the war was still going on. Um, yeah. It's a very similar sort of psychology, I think, in a way. Um, another interesting aside with this that some of our listeners and viewers may like is that uh, there is a so-called paranormal uh, connection presently, the Gurdon Light in Arkansas, uh, which is an earth light, ghost light, spook light. Um, that one actually has more of an explanation than most. And many scientists do 
theorize that the Gurdon light is created by energy being released from uh, the fault line. Mm. And that would that would provide a natural explanation. Yes, uh, basically that as tension builds and then releases, even if it's not, uh, you know, a felt uh, quake. Um, that uh, it creates enough energy that it's luminescent. Yes, <clears throat> which is fascinating. It is also, when you think about the kind of energy that is potentially being built up, is ominous. Mm -hmm. Even devoid of, even as we, as we potentially uh, strip this earth light of its supernatural or paranormal qualities and we just add in a level of of uh mm, forewarning yeah. <laughs> in, in terms of of this and something that that struck my attention uh just a, a couple of things that struck my attention in regard to this the uh one of the one of the detailed accounts of the new Madrid earthquake the very beginning of it, December 15th, 1811, from William Pierce, who was traveling in a flat bottom boat. Um, um, <clears throat> just south of New Madrid. And of course, he's mentioning it's December. He's mentioning that the, the evening was unpleasant. It was dark and cloudy and the weather unusually thick and hazy. Mm -hmm. Association of haze. And we don't think of earthquakes affecting the low atmosphere not so much but a lot of these accounts talk about um uh expulsion of thick liquids and so forth into the air um almost descriptions that you would associate more the volcano it is and then of course the 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 belching out of sulfur yes which had to have given the the earthquake doomsayers a lot to work with for obvious reasons i i'm sure it helped uh build the pews uh and there is of course a, a you know a geological explanations of this but i can't help but turn my memory back to the Mineral Springs Hotel in Alton, Illinois, which is upriver. Yes. And the fact that the, the hotel uh, was built on the top of a sulfur spring. Yeah, that, that was a little dis disconcerting. Yeah, you, you, you were too crazy about that, <laughs> as I recall. <laughs> it, to me, and, and it's, it is interesting. I mean, just the, the psychological and social analyses that you you deal with when you go on investigation, you know, and we're in the mm, admittedly creepy bowels of the, the now empty hotel, um, standing next to the sulfur pit, which is full of garbage that's slowly sinking along with, you know, being given the warning that you could, you have the rain of the hotel for the investigation, but whatever you do, do not walk out on that. Yeah, don't get too close over there because we don't know what it's going to slide in. <laughs> yes. 
duly noted. <laughs> and you know, there, there there's a, there's understandable, just very common sense reasons to have a uh, an aspect of foreboding. But let's face it, you're you're standing there, and some some of us, that would be me, am going, oh, this is great. It's hotels really convenient to the mouth of hell. <laughs> <laughs> just right there uh no wonder we have so many issues here um the <laughs> they just walk right out <laughs> are you are you saying i seemed more comfortable with the mouth of hell than you did that's what i'm worried that you're saying <laughs> or or considering the fact that i want to go back hmm uh not sure what that says about me yeah, well, I, I want to go back too. So <laughs> I, I do, I do. It's a great location. Highly recommend it. Um, some neat shops, great museum, um, fun stuff. <clears throat> but you know, I, I I cannot help but draw some comparisons with that. As soon as I was reading all of these, you know, the belching sulfur uh, yeah. of the uh, <laughs> of this, and I'm going, I I know what that looks smells like anyway, and. Mm -hmm really, really fascinating, and certainly a, an interesting aspect of commercial hubris in, in the fact that, you know, in 1811, they're, they're experiencing this going, it is the end of the world. It just is. We've got the sulfur, we've got the cataclysm, we've got the comet, we've got the whole thing. Um, you know, a hundred years later, uh, couple, you know, running backwards. <laughs> yeah. Everything that we read about in Revelation, uh, it's happening. Um, and a hundred, you know, a century later, um, digging into an ominous sulfur spring and going, hmm, into the world. No, not exactly. Let's build a hotel over it and sell tickets. Practicality. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> And uh, yeah, so it is, it is, but uh, just it's phenomenal to wrap your head around. And this is an event that impacted American history. It, it really did. It, it really did. And um, and just the tenor of that event may be a good segue into pirates. <laughs> I... I, I, I've had a thing for River Pirates uh, from the beginning. I think it all started with uh, the Disney movie, Davy Crockett and uh, uh, the River Pirates. Is that what it's called? Uh, it has Mike Fink as the key. Mm -hmm. Yes, and but isn't that actually, isn't that movie actually partly inspired by John Merrill? I believe so. I believe so. And I, I loved it because of the keel boats. Yeah. Uh, a deep appreciation for keel boats and was saddened. I was quite saddened the last time that I went back to Magic Kingdom after as an adult and found out that they had removed the keel boat ride. Ah. Uh, <laughs> probably out of safety issues. Yeah, I think one of them tipped over. Um, <laughs> that can do it. 
<laughs> either tipped over or swamped one of the two in the middle of rivers of america in i think 1997 um and uh but it was one of my favorites and the thing that i loved about it was the fact that it, it was not on a track they yeah. were actual keelboats that went out into the into the real waters so that but we we don't think of pirates and the middle of america and certainly the the edges of the ozarks as as going together but they did they did and and, and it goes back a long ways we have to we have to go back to before it was the united states mm -hmm. and uh Really, I guess we really have to start with Sam, Samuel Mason, um, who in the annals of American pirates is actually pretty notorious. Um, and plied his trade down up and down the Mississippi, the Ohio River. Um, and uh, ultimately used Cave in the Rock as a hideout. And basically was the subject of an international manhunt <laughs> through the Ozarks. Which is, is fascinating in and of itself. And from a, from a geological or, you know, looking at the map section, um, Cave and Rock is is a location that I really want to visit. It's on the Ohio River. It's an area that one does not immediately associate with the Ozarks because, first of all, it's on the Ohio River. Second of all, it's in Illinois. Right. And I will contend that while, yes, it is not in the Ozarks, it is in a... Mm, shared cultural and geographical ecosystem. Yes, plus the fact that the pirates that operated out there did operate in the Eastern Ozarks in Arkansas and Southern Missouri at times. So um, just because their their hideout was was not technically in the Ozarks, they, they did affect travel and commerce in the area and this is going back to 1790s and yeah. the the area the really fascinating area it's the southernmost tip of uh, of illinois mm -hmm. and something that i find really fascinating we you know from a very early age we learn state borders and we think of state borders as having a, a, a homogenized culture within those borders. And that's not the case at all. In, right. And in the these, no. the, these cultural, cultural strata, stratified cultural ecosystems essentially um, pay little attention to the the arbitrary lines on the map 
the surveyors lined up in the in the 19th century and pay a lot more attention to the actual lay of the land. True. This uh, unique, rugged, uh, limestone karst, uh, sandstone, um, hills and hollers, spaces that you you get through uh, on a, in a in a line through Kentucky, Southern Illinois. Then you're you've got the the Mississippi River Valley. Of course, you've got the Ohio River Valley but then a continuation into the Ozarks. And even today, there is shared uh, shared culture, and there is shared um, sort of a, a, a geographic personality that, mm -hmm. that comes across through here. And in the middle of this is Cave and Rock and uh, an area that as early as the 1830s was referred to as the ancient colony of horse thieves, counterfeiters, and robbers. You can't get more um, uh, ad adventure story uh, language than that. You cannot. So let's dig just briefly into Samuel Mason. I mean, we're talking about a river pirate and a highwayman. And that's you. Those are two. Those are those are a series of words that are very romantic in hindsight. Less mm -hmm. romantic if he's the one perpetrating the crime on you. Yeah, less romantic if you're at the other end of his uh, gun or or knife. Uh, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, it, it, a very rough gang um, that. Uh, create a lot of fear in merchants and travelers. Um, they killed a number of people in the course of their, their uh, operation. Uh, and then, uh, but had been largely successful. Most of his crimes were on the American side of the river. <laughs> Um, but, um, he, he would raid on the Western side, which at that point was Spanish land. Um, and he might have, he might have, uh, got sort of the adage gotten away with it, or at least lived a lot longer, except for the fact that, um, he, he took in the Hart brothers. Yes. And a lot of people are, probably are not familiar with the Hart brothers, but they are probably the, the first known serial killing duo in America, um, ranging from North Carolina to the, uh, the Ozarks. This is very true, and uh, they were of immediate Scottish descent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, originally their names they, they their name was Harper, and um, they immigrated as children with their parents shortly uh, before the American Revolution, and changed their name to Harp 
to be to try to fit in uh, with their English neighbors and not be recognized as Scottish. <clears throat> uh, they were they were actually cousins, even though they identified right. as brother. Uh, their original name and first names were Joshua and William. Mm -hmm. And and uh, that that uh, Joshua and William got changed to Micaja and Wiley. Yep. Now it is it Changing is basically uh, essentially yes that and and you know during it it's a difficult story all the way around and. You know, they, they, they settled in Orange County, North Carolina uh, around 1760. And they were staunch Tories. They were loyal to the British crown. And they found themselves very much mm, politically on the wrong side of the Revolutionary War. Right. And, and their immediate uh, neighbors. And it, during the war, uh, as as children, um, Joshua and William watched from a distance as their parents were tortured and hanged. Yes, I mean, actually, to be honest, there 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 seems to be some parallels um, with the James brothers. It's you know, and and this is this is something we. From a distance, you know, we're we're far enough removed from the American Revolution to not typically discuss this type of on the ground brutality and then the results from it. Um, and this is, you know, the, the truth of the matter is this kind of conflict and war is unbelievably ugly. And there are uh, there is collateral damage in the form of humanity as a result of it, uh, regardless of the larger outcomes, regardless of the greater good uh, that, that may or may not take place. And <clears throat> this, is, this is one of those, you know, from what we can tell, this is, this is one of those uh, aspects. Um, Illinois historian John Musgraves had a really interesting quote uh, about the quote unquote brothers and that was, quote, I think they realized early in they were not part of the elect and decided that if they were going to hell, they might as well make a grand entrance. Yeah, that that quote uh, caught my attention as well. And, and you really have to wonder about that because everything they did was very, I mean, pretty bold um, and but it does seem to to really come out of the experience of the war and seeing all this, just like the James brothers watched um, their stepfather, you know, Jesse watched his stepfather be tortured, and then then later their, you know, their home be bombed and their mother uh, maimed and brother killed, um, and the effect it had on them. Um, certainly not excusing anyone's behavior, but reality is reality and um they ended up basically heading west like so many people 
but leaving a body count behind them. Yes. <clears throat> and these were these were not men you wanted to encounter. No. Um, you know, you, we, there's various uh, figures that we discuss on this show that, you know, you put in that category, but to be perfectly honest, they probably are the most dangerous that we've talked about to this point. I think so. And as you noted, they're, they're largely unheard of. Mm -hmm. um, but they, it's, it's pretty clear that they went uh, full on predator. Yes. Plus they, you know, then, then they had quote wives and children, and it's pretty apparent that the that the wives were probably taken hostage um, at some point, and uh, were just trying to survive and protect children as much as they could. Um, and as they were describing that, it made me think of the Staffelback brothers. Uh, basically um, bringing teenage girls back from their travels with the uh, traveling carnival um, and uh, forcing them into relationships until they murdered them. Yes, and it is, there is a, there is a similarity in that regard. Mm -hmm. and, you know, the, the, the brothers um, in the early 1780s, uh, according to some accounts, uh, spent some time with the Cherokee and uh, in, in one account, their, their takeaway from the multicultural exchange was an appreciation for killing people with a tomahawk. Yes. Yeah. And um, just kept going and, and um, including children, you know, children mm -hmm. uh, as well. Um, it didn't seem to matter. At some point, they ended up at Cave in the Rock and were taken in by the Mason gang. Um, then uh, Mason decided that they, they were too dangerous and reckless and basically kicked them out, but eventually took Wiley back in. And that right. was, that's where Mason really screwed up. Yeah, yeah. Be, because um, they basically the the Spanish went after Mason, and he fled into the Ozarks, and they actually captured him and took him to New Madrid in about uh, eighteen oh three, and um, they determined that. The crimes that uh, they they were accusing him of had actually happened on the American side of the river, and so basically, the idea was uh, the governor, I think of Kentucky, had issued a warrant, and so they were to turn them over to the Americans, basically playing politics. And this was also during the time that the Louisiana territory is shifting back and forth. And so politics are coming into play. And so ultimately, 
um, Governor Claiborne posted a $2,000 reward for Mason's capture. And so Wiley Harp decapitated him. <laughs> yes. And, 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 and uh, took his head in uh, to collect the reward. I guess it was in Mississippi that the reward was. I'm sorry, it's of Kentucky. So now he was a pirate turned bounty hunter, Harp was. In, in terms of the overall, um, just the intensity of violence that we're talking about in terms of crime, a, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the, the criminals, the, the outlaws of the Ozarks in the Old West that we're, we're looking at about 50 to 80 years later, uh, look downright saintly compared to these two. Yes, yes. Now, I guess the flip side is um, um, the other cousin had already died at this point, but in the process of collecting the reward on Mason, uh, Wiley was uh, recognized, arrested, tried, and then hanged. So um, I don't think he got to spend the reward money. <laughs> it's, it, is, it is an interesting footnote in history that the, the gang of <clears throat> bloodthirsty outlaws of Cave and Rock um, threw the Hart brothers out uh, because they were so bloodthirsty. Yes, that 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 that's the line. <laughs> and, and and if you're you're wondering, you know, what what were some of the things that they they uh, they did? Uh, some of their victims they stripped naked, tied onto a horse, blindfolded the horse, and ran it off a bluff. Yes, or or um, split the uh, the chest cavity open, fill it with rocks, and then leave it to decay. Or sink it in the river. Or sink it in the river. And uh, on, a, on a number of occasions, uh, murdered infants, including one of their own daughters. Yes. Although he did say that was the one murder he regretted. <laughs> a, very, uh, a very kind of him. Yes. That uh, it's it, it it really reminds me of some of the worst of the worst of the of the Caribbean pirate lore. It does, and 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 the thing with some of the Caribbean lore is, you know, they, they think some of it's exaggerated. Some of it really did happen, but some of it's exaggerated. Um, mm. But it it really does remind you of of that. Um, think Jack the Ripper, but more unrestrained and less discreet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I think less, mm, sorry, Hart Brothers, less intelligent, unfortunately. And, and Right. I, and I, I think that, you know, I think the indiscretion aspect <clears throat> ties into that. And, and I think that it could be fair to conjecture that they got as far as they did simply because they were very much on the edge of the then frontier and the population was sparse and 
civilization in the forms of justice, law enforcement, et cetera, really hadn't caught up to that space yet. I, I think that's, I, I think that is exactly that it took, well, it, it took the Spanish army going out and, and tracking these guys down in a concerted effort to get them to where they, you know, tried them the first time at New Madrid. Um, short of that, they really operated carte blanche on mm-hmm. their own. So um, when, when you think about lawlessness, you know, you, you really were talking about, yeah, our, you know, armies marching on you to, to stop what you're doing. That's, and then there's settlers in this area um, trying to build homesteads and build towns. Um, and so it does give you a sense of, of what could happen and, and the, the risks that were out there. It does. <clears throat> it really, really does. And, you know, the jumping, uh, slightly jumping subjects, uh, is John Merrill. Yes, uh, John Merrill's a pretty interesting uh, character. And I, I, I think it, John, John uh, probably could only hope to have lived up to the reputation, his posthumous reputation. And, and I do think that that is one of those things that it, it does see it does appear that the the um, reputation exceeded him in life. Um, a, a bit a bit like the romanization of Jesse James again by um, John Edwards in the newspapers um, creating the Robin Hood. Um, Romanticize uh, the romantic version of everything. Uh, you had just the opposite happening for John Merle. <laughs> yes, yes, and in something that that does seem to be the case, I'm going to be mean and throw some of our bloodthirsty uh, early frontier outlaws under the proverbial bus on this. But okay. a, a a takeaway from. For example, the, you know, Cole Younger, uh, Frank James, Jesse James, a variety of these individuals were in, in many ways did genuinely live up to the bandit hero. Yes, and, and they're in their context, they did. And they, they were individuals who were... Um, you know, they, they came from the frontiers version of American aristocracy. They were, uh, and we'll, we'll put Bell Star in there as well, very well educated, very well spoken, very uh, highly intelligent individuals, and <clears throat> who really found themselves in, in these unique spaces. In the case of John Merrill, that does not seem to be the case. No, um, he he comes across if it, when you start digging a little deeper than the uh, 
in the legend as kind of a petty thief. <laughs> and, and not a particularly successful one, but no. And, and uh, <laughs> this was also uh, a time and place and in this uh, juncture space of early riverboat traffic of early settlement. Uh, it was also a, a pretty heady time for uh, counterfeiters. Yes. Yeah, a lot of people don't really think about that going on. We, in the Ozarks, we hear a little bit of about counterfeiting with silver and so forth, but you don't hear about it too much. And it just being a, you know, a part of the the sense that, <clears throat> of course, counterfeiting was was easier than it is today, but yeah. uh, also the fact that on this early American frontier in which the Mississippi River was largely the uh, the, the north-south dividing line and the, the proverbial end of the end of the, the line. And with a lot of early settlement going on, a lot of bartering, uh, but also a lot of a lot of trade happening, that currency, physical currency was in short supply. And so if you showed up with counterfeit money uh you could get rid of it pretty easily that's true often you could now the thing that was really interesting uh to me we're talking about um you know july 1834 john merrill's convicted in jackson tennessee of slave stealing um, mm -hmm. largely on the testimony of virgil a stewart and then he's sentenced to 10 years at the state penitentiary. Yeah. And then as this goes on, um, it's it seems reasonably evident that Virgil A. Stewart, under a pen name, comes out with a essentially a pamphlet extolling the uh, criminal underworld that John has uh, become kingpin of. Yes, and it, it does seem to be pretty much a work of fiction. That, and, and this, to me, this is just a, a fascinating story because, and, and it's, I suppose it's not completely conclusive um, that Stuart did author this pamphlet, but it is re very reasonable to say that in all likelihood he did. Yeah, and, and most historians writing on the subject tend to believe he did. And the, the accusations within this pamphlet that was, mm, became quite popular reading in Mississippi, Tennessee, Arkansas, uh, in the in the 1830s, uh, makes some some pretty dramatic claims, including uh, the 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 uh, position that John Merrill is the great Western land pirate. Yes, it's it's almost a conflagration of of Mason, really. 
into and, and, and sort of taking aspects of his life and in, in, in um, operation and attributing it to Morel. And uh, it, in essence, is sort of forerunner to the dime novels of the Old West period. It is, and then when you when you realize the essentially the panic that ensues from it, yes, uh, it is a conspiracy theory. I mean, it 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 instigates real life happenings um, based upon essentially a a fragmented conspiracy. Yeah, the, I mean, it, it really is an early version of that. Now that you say that. And, and I also think it, it's eerily uh, echoing some issues that, that are almost foreshadowing um, the, the secret society lore of the Civil War and the post-war South. We have um, the claims that Merrill is the head of the mystic clan of the Confederacy. Uh, mm -hmm. which is a vast but underground organization um, in the, the, the mystic clan, clan spelled with a C, by the way. We're not yeah. talking about the Ku Klux Klan. No. Um, quite opposite, actually, in, in some weird ways, that has hundreds of members located in every slave state and on every level of society. So it's advocating for this idea that there is a a mysterious, uh, unknown criminal organization, and it is everywhere, and it is nowhere, and that the the head. I mean, this is this is basically like, sorry, Jabba the Hutt and the uh, you know the the criminal underworld of Star Wars, as the the implication, and it, it created an enormous amount of paranoia. At a, at a time and a place where that became very dangerous, particularly in planter culture. Um, and it, it became very dangerous to anyone that might become suspect. Yes, I mean, it, it, I mean, it, it, you know, even the claims of, of what the, the quote, the mystic clan was supposed to, you know, be up to were, pretty vague and amorphous, um, but basically a threat to the existing order, basically. Um, and the, and the, and the, the biggest uh, amorphous threat was that on uh, uh, December 25th, on Christmas Day of 1835, um, the the mystic clan of the Confederacy was going to incite a massive slave revolt. Yes. That and but this is this is going to happen. That while the slave revolt was going on, the clan of the Confederacy was going to steal everybody's money. Right. That ba basically the revolt was the distraction. Yes. Um, and this unfortunately happened in conjunction with, I think, some very well-meaning and zealous uh, abolitionists publishing lots of uh, anti-slavery pamphlets and circulating them throughout Western Mississippi 
at the same time. Yeah, uh, just sort of a a, a convergence of of uh, timing. And and this is also only four years after the Nat Turner Rebellion. Right, and that still is fresh in people's minds. And it, it's something that I think is is also important. I mean, in the 1830s, we're still looking at early frontier settlement and early frontier plantation. And so the, you know, it's it was not uncommon for these uh, these plantation plantations to have essentially been recently planted, oftentimes with absentee landlords. Yes. And then hundreds of uh, of African Americans uh, placed on the on the land uh, in forced labor, and very few of the uh, the ruling class to oversee them. True, true. Which is, you know, you have this convergence and Morel, I don't think, was probably oblivious to all of this. Probably so. And that is the, the most comical <laughs> and the worst part of this is that, that John Merrill is, um, as you said, likely oblivious to this at various times, um, indigent, um, eking out a, a, a half-hearted survival in a, in a, in a falling apart log cabin and, and you know, very separate from this um, mythopoetic status that is building up around him. And even though he's not not well known uh, today, um, this image continued to grow and what was widespread and in fact um, influenced um, people like Samuel Clemens, Mark Twain. Yes. In fact, um, uh, Clemens compared, basically said that, you know, his, you know, in his received versions that morale was much more of a danger and, and more of an outlaw than Jesse James ever thought to be. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> And uh, references him as a, and this of course is uh, In Life on the Mississippi by Mark Twain. Um, uh, references him as a, as a consummate villain. And specifically, names uh, Island 37 and the Mississippi as the, mm, oh, essentially Port Royale of the river pirates. Yeah, basically, yeah, Pirate Island, yeah. Um, and there's not really much factual basis for that that we can find. No. That anyone can no. find. But the But the thing about it is that it makes uh great reading it it makes great reading and and the thing of it is is that because 
it is one of those examples, as you said, an early conspiracy theory, but also a good example of if you repeat it enough, people do believe it. And as time went on, it was received as fact. Yes. Yes. And and it, it does. It it takes on a life of its own. And and it also plays heavily upon the the paranoias and the fears of uh, of the the aristocratic society, quote unquote aristocratic society at the time, which were in a a pretty compare pretty um, precarious position in early South Settlement. Yes, uh, agreed. And actually, that might be a good segue into talking about Swampcraft. I I like that. And this is, so just as a, as a bit of another addition, I think it might be surprising for some people to realize that uh, the Ozarks do have swamps. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, you know, certainly as you get closer to the Southern River Delta uh, spaces of the mountains, and there, I'm gonna, I'm gonna digress for just a moment as a, as a uh, segue into Swampcraft, but something that's very interesting about the Ozarks ecosystem is, is not so much that the Ozarks have a terribly unique ecosystem that cannot be found elsewhere, but rather the fact that there are so many ecosystems, comparatively speaking, within the Ozarks, the raised upland plateau of the Ozarks, that you would think would only be found elsewhere. Very, that's, that is true. And, and I do think that's one reason that has lent itself to in, cross influences. Um, not the only reason, but because parts of the region are similar to other areas of the country, it, it's a natural crossover for people um, and familiarity and experience. And it's in, in what is sometimes very perplexing about the Ozarks is that at times you can even hike through these various ecosystems of side by side. True, in relatively uh, confined spaces. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, we have the we have the uh, the deciduous hardwood, <clears throat> um, a temperate forest uh, that mm -hmm. is is very similar to what I grew up with in central Illinois. It is uh, an enormous part of the the ecosystem of the. Uh, Southern Ohio uh, River Valley. You have uh, portions and originally larger portions of tall grass prairie that are, you know, associated with Kansas and Nebraska. Mm -hmm. You have um, originally and still some surviving, minimally surviving, uh, but some that have been have been restored. Um, stands of massive yellow pine that we associate with the the, the South. 
we we have uh, lowland delta, sometimes in a very compressed um, river ecosystems that that you're looking at um, river reed. You're looking at these bottom lands with the massive uh, massive, massive trees, particularly cottonwood and sycamore, uh, and, uh, and almost tropical. It's not tropical. I mean, it is a, you know, a, a largely deciduous, but it's still this, uh, you know, this time of year, all the way into September, October, it's almost jungle with the vines and the mud and the venomous snakes and the, uh, <laughs> the uh, the pawpaws and it's it's a very unique um, riverine uh, system. Then you have the cedar glades uh, or the glades, which is a southwestern space, mm -hmm. uh, very much a, a desert environment surrounded by. You, know, you can literally hike from this unbelievably um, moist. Um, almost jungle-like space into a desert space just by climbing to the top of certain hills and and this is a this is a region you know these are these are literally pockets of southwestern um great american southwest um uh, you know ecology where you have uh prickly pear you have cactus uh you have um um, tarantulas. Uh, you have you have a variety of additional uh, flora that is associated with the with the southwest and very. Uh, it's a higher temperature. Uh, the entire space has a much higher temperature. And then, uh, particularly in the uh, receding Ozarks, as you get toward the the um, southeast you can get into swamps. Yes. And um, with that, it becomes very interesting, especially vis-a-vis uh, um, the uh, discussion we were having earlier about the effect of the fear of the legend of John Morrell. Right. Right, because you're dealing with um, essentially a, a swamp island, um, mm -hmm. and and there, there's some interest, very interesting um, sort of sociological fears, and then sociological fears that get turned against um, certain demographics at the same time. With the idea of this this uh, riverine pirate island mm -hmm. that and the and the the <clears throat> just is it is uh, fascinating i'm going to go back to uh mark twain for a moment but oh and uh and part of the part of the legend of john morrell was he was also planning to seize the capital seize the city of new orleans more out of spite apparently than anything else that's right. I've forgotten that part. That's true. <laughs> um, whether whether Morel or his, you know, Morel's gang existed, which it doesn't appear that um, that it had, but certainly something that did occur 
Uh, we're not implying, I'm not implying that John Morrell was associated with this, associated in this, but something that was very chilling that did take place was a really horrific human trafficking scheme in which these outlaw criminals would pose as helpful abolitionists to would-be enslaved African Americans attempting to escape. They would pose as individuals who would help you escape. Mm -hmm. And so you would, for example, believe them and you would enlist their their help to get away. You would be in the process of getting away and then you would get captured and mm-hmm. uh, and you would be captured by other members of the gang that was helping you get away. They would be encouraging runaways solely for the purpose of capturing them and returning them again for their bounty. Yes, yes. and. And and this was happening in in times before uh, more organized underground railroad activities. So um, it was it, it was a danger. Um, um, and so uh, with that going on, it does give a little credence to um, why perhaps the the story of John Morrell and his clan doing all of this and planning all this may have spread. That I think there so. were events going on that that made it more believable. Yeah. And that, you know, it's it's a very, it is a very chilling and heart-wrenching aspect of really of, of early and mid-19th century human trafficking. It's exactly what it was. Um, uh, very similar things happen in lots of part, parts of the world today um, as well. So um, it, it's not an isolated thing, unfortunately, um, and well, continues, unfortunately, in many places, including in the United States. There, There is a human trafficking well, issue. So, very um, much so. And, and it's one of those that I think just like these issues that were happening, say, in the 1830s, um, was happening in and around and under the noses of individuals who were completely unfamiliar with what was going on. Well, it still does. In fact, uh, uh, one, one of the hubs of trafficking uh, in the last 20 years uh, has been right in the middle of the Ozarks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, that's for another show and another topic but um but it it does it still goes on and goes on in this area and and, um uh where people would be surprised that it does so well it's i mean if uh if crime was happening out where everybody could see it it would be stopped in general true but but it's it's more uh, out and open than people think in some places. Yeah, and mm-hmm. and then I think the 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 worst part about this, the, you know, the eighteen thirties 
um, situation that we've described is that at any point, if the, the, the individual who was attempting to run away to freedom caught on, yeah, they would kill him. They would kill him. Yeah. If, if, if it, if it was going to interfere with their operation. Mm -hmm. So definitely a dangerous situation. And, and uh, those kind of dangers were not just the physical kind in that situation, which leads to um, our topic surrounding the swamps and some of the things that, uh, how the swamps figure as threshold spaces and um, and to, um, as a sense of secrecy and a sense of freedom. It is. And one of the, one of the really unique aspects in it, our, um, you know, source citation, the article in question is from spring 2014, uh, from swamps to swamping the usage of perceptions of swamps by African-Americans in antebellum and post-bellum Arkansas and Louisiana by Tessa Annette Neblet Evans of James Madison University. And it really is especially fascinating because it, for me, one of the things that really jumps out is that it draws some very opposing lines uh, in terms of how the swamp, and you could also say forest or wild space is considered by these two very much in opposition or in conflict demographics that are also demographics that are in very close proximity. Um, mm -hmm. Put it very bluntly, the slave owners and the slaves. Yes. Um, and um... Where do you want to start with that? Well, in, in terms of, of the article itself, the, the line that really jumped out was that Europeans in the white community viewed the swamps as static, uh, physical spaces on the plantation without value. And in some cases, even going so far as to regard them, perhaps appropriately so, with trepidation and with fear. Yes, yes. Um... And um, particularly analogous to um, graveyards and cemeteries. Um, and both sides actually, uh, in some ways, viewed them as almost a supernatural space that were haunted. Yes, I, and I think that's, I think that that, mm, I think that that, subconscious headspace exists to this day for for many many people including myself true and um the obligatory scooby-doo reference um of course um the episode with about the ozark which actually which confuses a lot of people the episode actually takes place in the swamp Yes, and you're it very. E it would be very easy to say, "Oh, they got that wrong." Uh, there's no swamps in the Ozark, but they actually are. And, and in this context, that that episode actually makes a lot of sense. It does, 
Um, in the again, coming back to the article, African Americans viewed the swamps as fluid places, places filled with value. Uh, religious practices were often performed near swamps, uh, and even so-called uh, aberrant religious religions practices like voodoo happened in swamps. Mm -hmm. And um, the uh, often referred to find, finding the religion in the swamp. Um, and this is something that um, is, is not anticipated um, in that usually you are given the impression that um, Christianity was pretty much forced upon the slave population in the Deep South. And we have images of you know, slaves singing uh, spirituals and so forth, uh, which did happen in places, but in, in the Arkansas, as well as uh, Louisiana, often Christianity was discouraged from the slaves. Um, and they, they did that thinking that they would control them better. And so actually the slaves were seeking not only um, alternate religions such as voodoo and, and, and practicing West African practices, but also finding Christianity in the swamps. Which to me is really, really fascinating and, and honestly quite beautiful all the way around. Yes. The, there's, of course, the, the, the notation that with West African religious beliefs, uh, water and spirits are, are directly tied together. Yes. And so there, there was a continuation of associating swamps, which are filled with water. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and I think that, you know, with, with that, as, as unique spiritual places, you could, you know, the, the, the analog uh, in that regard is uh, seeing the swamp as a cathedral. How a, how a Western European would potentially view a cathedral as a, a sacred space. Mm -hmm. Well, and and uh, and really, I I think it's a continuation on the spectrum. Really, I think I I think it is. Um, I, I do find it interesting that um, we we think of. Uh, slave patrols in the South looking for runaway slaves, but they were also used to um, uh, search for slaves engaging in religious activities. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it's a, I, 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 you, the, I, I think the unwritten aspect of this is the fear that religion would give them a sense of empowerment that would shift a balance of power in in the area right <clears throat> uh, and you know and again i mean a reference back to the um the merle pamphlet 
in the 1830s, you know, a situation where uh, African Americans were outnumbering um, white folks in the plantation, oftentimes 50 or 100 to one. The, you know, and we're, we're the, the biggest, typically the, the greatest fear within these spaces was that, uh, for example, Mississippi or Alabama was going to become the next Haiti. Yeah. With the slave, slave rebellion. Yes, that's true. And so there is a lot of tension. There is a lot of paranoia. There is a lot of, unfortunately, at times, extreme brutality in, a, in an attempt, and, and quite frankly, as difficult as this is, a uh, very successful uh, campaign to prevent revolts and you know, maintain the status quo, maintain the, uh, the plantation culture until the Civil War. Very much so. I also, uh, you know, cannot cannot help but mm, make some reference points uh, to the fact that uh, West African tradition regards um, dangerous reptiles as very positive spiritual forces. That's true. And and. Um, and of course, Western European tradition regards large dangerous reptiles very, very differently. That, that's true. So there, there is that dichotomy. And so um, practicing belief in the swamps or the forests allowed them to honor their, their, those traditions Whereas even if they were able to uh, practice religion formally, it was at the terms of, of the, the white uh, slave owners um, and usually in church with them, with a white minister, um, so that, uh, again, a matter of control and dissemination of power and information. And, and all of those things can, can lead to a lot of tension, a lot of, uh, of subconscious tension, a lot of conscious tension, and as well as, as the, the, the obvious class tension that is taking place, especially when, when first of all, the, the individuals, just uh, by de facto, the individuals who are most closely associated with the land are going to be the ones most comfortable in these spaces. And then you, you further that with the fact that the individuals who are um, seeking refuge, seeking solace within the swamp threshold, the liminal space, the liminal spiritual and physical space of the swamp are, are individuals of direct ancestry who are coming from a, um, an ecosystem that was as wild, if not dramatically even more dangerous than these swamps. True. There's, there's, a, there's a level of potentially built-in comfort within the space that Western Europeans would have found 
you know, the same space very frightening. That's true. That's true. Um, so it does have a different context. Um, and I do find it very interesting and, and really beautiful in, 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 in many ways that there, there are a lot of accounts um, that they give of um, the slaves experiencing uh, ghosts in the swamp. Yes. Some positive I, and some not positive, actually. That in this particular case, in the the um, the article on page forty four, encounters with ghosts, spirits, and the supernatural tended to occur near bodies of water, such as canals, rivers, and swamps, which resonates with West African beliefs that spirits often inhabited places with water. Mm hmm. And. Um... You know, one description of um, from Peter Hill that being on a bridge and uh, that uh, his wife saw spirits uh, with no heads, so headless uh, phantoms, actually. Yes. Um, I thought this was interesting on page 45. Cemeteries in Louisiana were described by many Black and white residents as both swamp-like and haunted, especially since the coffins tended to reappear during flood seasons, creating an eerie scene for many visitors. Yes, and, and the French settlers referred to it as the flotant of the floating land, um, mm -hmm. which, which certainly conjures images. But um, And that's why a lot of cemeteries in swamp land, in bayou land, uh, are raised and all have crypts for that reason. Um, you know, there's a description here that uh, on rainy days um, that uh, in the swamp that you would find half open caskets floating in the mud, um, which, I'm sure contributed to the sense of being haunted anyway. I I would think so. And I I find swamps to be very fascinating. I always have. I, I do too. And 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 I I love to go through the bayous. I I do. I do. And I was I was interested in this particularly. Um you know, a reference to Marie Laveau, the quote-unquote voodoo queen of New Orleans, yes. um, uh, was said to hold voodoo celebrations and rituals in Bayou St. John, uh, a swamp that formed from the overflow, overflow of Lake Pontchartrain. Mm -hmm. uh, and other perpetrators of voodoo utilized snakes, lizards, uh, and other animals that inhabited the swamps in southern Louisiana to create voodoo charms, potions, and practice rituals. West African police perpetuated the importance of snakes, as I noted earlier, and some West African uh, religions uh, worship snakes, and Laveau supposedly owned several pythons for rituals, which I had not heard. I hadn't heard, I hadn't heard that, that either. Very interesting. Um, and in general, that often the slaves would practice uh, voodoo 
and witchcraft near water. Um, which again goes along with the beliefs, but also just practicality because the masters tended to stay away from the area. Right. So there's there. The, it really is an intersection, you know, of of practicality uh, of two very different cultures colliding with one another. It, it really is, and but uh, it, I, I find it very beautiful because it also gives a glimpse of the resiliency of the the culture of the um, subjugated group it does it does and you know there's there's clearly reference um you know and, and i think you know aspects of there's something i was talking about last night um aspects of ancestral memory mm -hmm. and you know wrapping wrapping our head around that i think there's a there's oftentimes a lot of extreme conclusions that we jump to in regards to ancestral memory but the idea you know i think from my perspective the fact that just as genetically um you know from a from a provable scientific standpoint genetically we mm, carry with us the code of thousands of past generations uh in as as part of ourselves that i think that for myself, anyway, I conjecture that um, our our individual spirits, our spirit, our, our spirit side, uh, does the same, and that there there are echoes and resonances that that follow us from generation to generation, regardless of whether we have been schooled in it uh, officially. True. Yeah. Well. Yes. Yeah. So the, uh, yeah. Yes, we had we had a bit of that discussion in the last couple of days, as I recall. Um. Yeah, and, and I, you know, yeah, and you know, for for me, I find it, you know, as a as a as a as a as an early adolescent, I I found it fascinating, but at times perplexing because there would be certain things that would oddly resonate and very mm, seemingly esoteric or unrelated things that would very oddly resonate and i'm going i don't know why this is so terribly important to me but i i but it is i know that this is profound for me personally and it's so much of it uh, as you begin piecing it together ties back to my not inconsiderable um Celtic ancestry. Yes. And and I've had I've certainly had those moments as well that don't seem to make it much sense other than for that reason. So I I I can empathize with that. And and I think that it's it, you know, certainly in in certain family lines and lineages, uh, from people all over the globe, those moments happen. And oh, definitely. I I can't help but uh, but draw some 
some some conceptual comparisons with, for example, individuals say of of Cherokee ancestry or individuals of West African ancestry, uh, experiencing moments, experiencing these these profound uh, moments that take you out of the uh, the homogenized world of modernity that we find ourselves where we're we're essentially stuck in categories and told you're this and this is your culture so on and so forth and then something happens to to jar you out of that and you're going there is something here from a, from the past that's calling me mm -hmm. and and i think sometimes those happen at the most unexpected moments right i i i agree I agree. And and you typically know them because they stand out in your memory. Yeah. Agreed. And, you know, uh, sort of this Delta area, uh, it, it ended up with some interesting juxtapositions of uh, things that happened that um, are sort of antithetical to what happened in other places across the South in the Ozarks and um, particularly thinking of, about Chico County. Yeah, yes. <laughs> uh, our, well, there's, there's several things in Chico County, uh, Arkansas, that mm -hmm. are <laughs> quite fascinating. One of them is a beautiful plantation one. Yes, um, which has been restored, which has been beautifully restored and is said not to be haunted. Yeah. <laughs> maybe yes, maybe no, who knows? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll go check it out sometime. And, uh, and that is Lakeport. Yes, Lakeport, Arkansas. And I there's some really fascinating aspects of this. Um, uh, the Lakeport Plantation in Chico County uh, was completed in 1859. And of course, it's near the Mississippi River. And, and it has been fully restored now uh, many, many years later. And it, interesting, I really do want to visit it. it it's quote unquote ranked as Arkansas's most impressive antebellum residence. Um, and it's, I mean, it's a 17 room mansion. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in seeing it. Uh, 8,000 square feet. It's large. Yes, it is. <laughs> it fits several of my houses inside. Um, about seven of them. About. <laughs> <laughs> Two and a half of mine, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the, uh, and I, I love this guy's name. The oldest, um, the uh, Joel Johnson uh, and his uh, oldest son inherited the estate. Uh, his oldest son was named Lycurgus. Of course. <laughs> It's unique. It is. It is. Um, and you know, by the by the time the 
the Civil War occurred, the the property was four thousand four hundred acres, and he was he owned one hundred fifty five slaves. It's, I mean, it, it's it's disconcerting to think about that aspect. It really is. It is. It is. Um, arrival, the, the federal troop, uh, you know, the, the Union Army um, arrived in 1864. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the, the federal soldiers uh, took away uh, the plantations, mules, horses, and cattle, and of course, emancipation um, freed the slaves. Um, and it is interesting because <clears throat> at that point, uh, like Hergis Johnson, really, uh, you know, from what we can tell, turns over uh, a new leaf and really begin becomes someone that. Um, the, that really can be worked with in the in the in the post-war South. Mm -hmm. That it, it's, uh, a, it's a more positive uh, situation than in many places. And you know, according to the article, quote, he quickly developed a reputation as a fair and honest employer, and he was employing many of the individuals who had previously been slaves on the plantation. That is, that's good. There, there was an interesting a note um, that there were were dozens of these types of plantation homes uh, before the Civil War, and and the and Lakeport is the only one to have survived. The fact that the almost all of them were lost due to fire, neglect, natural disasters, and as previously noted. The changing course of the Mississippi River. Yes, yes. So I mean, it 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 happened all up and down the river. So I'm I'm still wrapping my head around the fact that you, know, you could uh, build an eight thousand square foot mansion and then unfortunately lose it to the fact that the Mississippi River capriciously changed its course one day. <laughs> well. New meaning, new new meaning to the phrase "living on the edge." <laughs> but something I I I am uh, I'm fascinated by the uh, by the statement that the plantation is not haunted. I'm I'm just very curious about that. That's just me. Well, well, technically the the statement was we don't believe so. Yes, it's a very diplomatic response. Mm-hmm. Very, very diplomatic response. Not a but, categorical denial, but true. Uh, but something else happened in, in uh, Chico County in, yeah. in 1871 that is not very well known. No, and in a little different than um, sort of analogous situations elsewhere. Um, uh, they they refer to it as a race war. Um, this is a situation that uh, there was a murder of 
African-American lawyer, um, Lothal, uh, win by three white men. And basically then um, the black community retaliated. Um, they, they took those three from jail, killed them, and um, basically prompted white, white residents to flee the county where in so many areas uh, during that time period through the early turn of the century, uh, similar situations ended up with black populations um, fleeing. It did. I mean, this this is very much a, a reversal of what was going on in other parts of the country, including Parsons of the Ozarks. Yes, yes. Uh, it did happen in very, various other places in the Ozarks in southern Missouri and northern Arkansas. And, uh, and western Oklahoma. Yes. Uh, we had you know, <clears throat> very, very you know, unfortunate race riots happening, particularly around, I would say, approximately, what would you say, 1890 to about 1915, 1920? Roughly, yes. Uh, yeah. You're looking at these types of things happening in um, St. Louis, Tulsa, Springfield, as well as other smaller communities within the Ozarks. Yes. Um, so yeah, several, actually pretty small areas as well, but um, it's, um, you know, regrettable on so many, so many uh, levels, but this, um, this situation, it kind of morphed a little bit. Um, And the railroad was involved. That it was. I, just so many aspects of this entire story are really, really fascinating. Yeah. You know, basically, um, try, you know, meetings about bringing railroads through the county and um, the argument erupted in which when um, accused another man at the meeting of being a liar, a law, liar and then um, who drew a pistol and then shot when that's how it got started. Um, um, and and then, there also, uh, I, I found this interesting that uh, various newspapers, regional newspapers reported it very differently um, depending mm -hmm. upon their their social and political leanings with some newspapers uh, describing it as a reign of terror and other newspapers saying that the reports of violence and destruction were exaggerated. Right. And so it's, you know, it's one of those things that in some ways it's, it's a little harder to get a grasp on. Um, ultimately, um, man who was shortly thereafter elected sheriff was held responsible for it and indicted, um, was arrested. This was uh, James Mason and um, he uh, was released on a writ, um, served out his term as sheriff 
Um, and so unfortunately, it does not appear that a whole lot happened as a consequence. Right, right. It, it, and that I think to some degree may have contributed to this, this sense that it, mm, while not being completely lost to history, it just sort of mm, remained unmentioned for decades. Right, yeah. Um, some, it's, and sometimes, and you see it in, in various instances like this, you have something happen and you don't have a clear resolution at the end of, to um, punctuate fault, blame, liability, and mm -hmm. then it just sort of fades away, which it, it shouldn't. True, true. And, and again, this is incredibly part of not only regional history, but part of American history uh, on all aspects. Um, the, the difficult sides of it, the positive sides of it. And it's, and I think that this is really highlighting the fact that history is exceptionally complex because human beings are exceptionally complex. Very much so. And um, it, it does not usually come down to a 10 second sound bike. <laughs> no, which, you know, not to pat ourselves on the back too much, but just the, the aspect of long format podcasting, which, you know, is obviously something that we're heavily invested in, but not just ours, but long format podcasting across the board is, is to me, um, a very encouraging development because we are shifting away from the mm, opinions formed with that um, you know, a minute and 30 seconds max. Right. Um, hopefully getting uh, attention span expanded a little bit again, too. And, and I think, I think, you know, again, depending on context, but the fact that uh, long format podcasts are so extremely popular, particularly uh, amongst uh, younger generation, I mean, individuals born 1980s and later. Yeah. is it really it really punctures the what I consider to be the myth that we're just each generation is getting successively shorter attention spans. Well, I, th I think media started assuming that and informing content that way. And so it seems that way. And, and, and it may be for s some some groups, but um, and of course, things go in cycles anyway. So uh, you go for a while when you there's not much content, everything is sound bites, and then people people's natural curiosity kicks in. I want to know more. So well true. And and I mean for myself, I, I find I find myself just doing both, which sounds very contradictory. But I mean, in, in certain situations, I'm going, I, I have the attention span of a goldfish. So tell it to me fast and I need to get on with my stuff. But then there are very regular basis, probably, I think at this point, easily six to 12 times a week, I find myself immersed in a long format 
uh, either podcast or video. And, and, and not just the one that we do. I'm, right. <laughs> I'm very, I'm very immersed in our long format podcast because I did the research for it tonight, but you know, <laughs> not talking about art. Talking exactly. about art. <laughs> and uh, so all that to be said, I, I deeply appreciate folks listening in. Um, and uh, it is, it is a little, I'm just going off completely off topic here, but it is a little surreal because, you know, I think this is incredibly powerful medium. And when we started this in 2020, we were just having fun talking about the paranormal. And yeah, I mean, on, a, on, a, on an honest level, we were, were definitely more focused on just having a good time on subject matter that we were passionate about than the idea that anybody, that the real people might actually be listening. That's that's true. Well, we we assume there may be any way now. Well, you know, fingers crossed. Um, exactly. <laughs> and but, uh, yeah, go oh, go ahead. No, you can. No, no. I was going to say. Uh, um, I, I was just going to kind of jump over to river culture and steamboats, but yeah, I didn't want to uh, interrupt you. No, that's actually exactly what I was getting ready to do. So let's talk about steamboats. I. <laughs> I am absolutely fascinated by American riverboats. I have been since I was a child. I want to go, uh, I want to get on one and have it steam down the river, preferably one that's not going to explode horrifically, uh, as they were wont to do in the 19th century. Of course, they're <laughs> vastly safer now uh, yep. because we have, you know, rules and, uh, <laughs> and safety checks and, Mm, oversight those things were not happening in the 1850s but there is just something magical and moving and terribly romantic uh about the the majesty of the great american riverboat there really is and i i've, I've been on several um including on the mississippi and i love it it's for me i love trains too and um actually um got to as a child ride frisco trains when they were passenger trains with with my grandmother to go visit my aunt and uncle in peoria oh my gosh i did not realize that yeah um well my aunt and uncle they lived at galesburg but we would you know um the train would go to peoria so um and my uncle was an was an electrician for the railroad so um we would uh we would go to arkansas city and then i would stay with my grandmother and we would take the train to illinois and so you got to you know you, you had sleeping car you know you really weren't necessarily on there long enough for that but and then the dining car the dining car was what i loved as as a child uh, what was what was that like? What was what was it all like? Well, to be honest, you know, um, in 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 my childhood visions, it, it was like being on the Orient Express. <laughs> I love that. Um, but you know, very formal dining, um, 
And uh, I remember it, uh, when I was younger, doing because probably probably did the first time when I was about five and really wondering how the the plates stayed on the table because you could you know you would hear the the wheels and you know there'd be the jangling and everything and just wondering why everything didn't slide off the tables (laughs) in my five-year-old brain (laughs) um that is very very cool very very cool now I'm wondering where where uh where the train crossed the river. I don't know why that is fascinating to me. That that I'm not positive. I mean, I would assume probably at St. Louis, but I don't I don't remember. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And you know, train trains, of course, are are a ubiquitous part of our infrastructure. They're very romantic, romanticized for obvious reasons. And Yet the train was a moment of modernity that replaced an earlier infrastructure. Mm-hmm. That infrastructure being uh, the the heyday of the of the Great American Steamboat. Really is, and and the ones that you can go on now, I mean, they're they're great, but they they definitely are a little more um, of a sanitized experience. Just the descriptions of the steamboats of the era and everything that was there between, you know, the the people and the wares and the the, the saloon and the smells and so forth. Um, a very rich experience. And and I think as as you noted, I think with the with the train. For for many individuals, particularly children, it was a very exotic experience. Very much so. I mean, and, and you just think about it, just like a train whistle, you know, you would have, you know, um, the the whistles, uh, uh, the horns approaching a port to stop and clanging the bell to signal that it was leaving. Um, very much similar. Um, rituals that were carried on with the trains and came from steamboats really it did it did i think and so coming back to going what does this have to do with the ozarks riverboat culture heavily impacted the ozarks in the 19th century yes and uh, in a lot more places than than people think. We're not just talking about the Mississippi and the Missouri or even the Arkansas River uh, on the perimeters of the region. Um, steamboats, including passengers and, and freight, uh, infiltrated the interior of the Ozarks to the very interior, I mean, into... Uh, <laughs> Northern Arkansas, Southern Missouri, um, up to the Osage River that um, we look at today and think there's no way a boat could go on that river or that creek. Right. So there's a couple of there's there's a couple of dynamics to take into account in terms of our of our riverboat history. One is when 
when they say that the riverboats had a shallow draft, they meant it. They did. I mean, there were in one of the articles for tonight, there was the account of the the boat getting into deep deep water, and they said it was four feet. <laughs> <laughs> there was it some of the largest steamboats that were built in the 19th century were built in such a way and of course this is though it is important to know these were boats by the technical definition they were huge mm -hmm. uh, but they are boats by the technical definition in terms of their their draft and the fact that they are on the, on the river these were were not uh craft that were designed to go in the open sea by any stretch of the imagination they physically they wouldn't they wouldn't take it is a vastly different structure than a, a seagoing ship uh your your larger craft in the ocean is a ship <laughs> it is not a boat um but it has more to do with the structure of the hull and its purpose in terms of of uh transit than it does with the size because so many of the river boats uh very shallow draft were at the same time absolutely massive these are gigantic three to four to five story tall structures mm -hmm. with in some cases a three-foot draft yeah i mean it's it's hard to conceptualize really it, um, it is it is and you know largely what we're what we're talking about is you know the fact that the the weight distribution is over such an incredibly wide area with such a flat bottom that right. you're not pressing it's it's an even distribution pushing back against the water so you're not pressing deeply and as a result you can have a comparatively massive ship or boat massive craft that is traversing in water that in some cases you literally could wade across right yeah be you know knee deep <laughs> which does not seem like it would work uh and yet it does uh, under the right circumstances and so because of that incredibly shallow draft that is what allowed for the possibility of steamboats um, depending upon their their construction and their width etc uh, to traverse the interiors. That's the, the, the issue at hand. And so as, as a result, uh, the White River was navigable. And this one really gets me. Um, the, the farthest that a, that a steamboat got on the White River was to the mouth of the James. Yeah. Uh, that is... Uh, about 20 some miles west of my house. Yeah. You know, and um, um, now once, and we're talking about <clears throat> Buffalo, the Buffalo, we'll talk about the Buffalo and the White River for a moment. These are mountain rivers. Mm -hmm. And for those of us who live here, we understand the, uh, Hmm. the delight of uh, hmm. flash floods 
the fact that you, depending on, on rainfall, because the water essentially hits the limestone karst and runs off of it or runs yeah. through it, through the, um, the subterranean passageways and then fills the, 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 the riverway systems and you have a whole bunch of water going downstream and then you don't. <laughs> and that that was the biggest issue even with the really shallow draft uh, more than one uh, riverboat on the white river got stranded in one case got stranded for 13 months before there was enough rain that they were able to refloat it and get yeah. back down the river um, which <sighs> you know when time is money uh, 13 months that your investment is sitting there not being able to be used would have to drive you absolutely crazy. Yes, and, and especially since because of the nature of the construction, as well as the fact that the tendency to, to catch fire and blow up, um, the lifespan of, of steamboats generally were, was very short shelf life. It was uh, two or three years, really. So if they weren't moving, they really were losing money and then some. Um, I think it's one thing that um, I, I wanted to mention because people, you just don't think about this thing, these things that, uh, again, part of it is because you still were in a very sparsely populated, rugged area. Uh, the description, it's on, actually on page two of the notes of basically fueling a, a steamboat. You know, you had, you had to um, stoke the boilers with wood and they tried to use pine because it would burn hot and fast. Um, but, and they, and um, farmers would um, cut wood and, and have it, uh, uh, set up along the river and it, it really was an honor system if if someone was there you paid them <laughs> if not I assume they left a note because then the owner would basically catch them on the way back to be paid mm -hmm. and um and it, they note that um uh, stealing the the wood really didn't happen much um, and then if, um, you ran low and where there wasn't a cordwood ready that the, the custom was you could take the rail fence and then reimburse the farmer. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, I know, you know, one occasion the, the narrator says, I recall, that they they took two thousand red cedar rails. Um, that is a lot of that's a lot of rails that someone put up that had to be replaced. It did, but you think about um, <laughs> the fact that that farmer probably walked away happy with the amount of money in his pocket from having put up a fence. That's true. He could put up another fence. Yeah. And uh, and <clears throat> with the uh, essentially the the deckhand slash mates that were on board, 
I suspect there was a small um, covey of men who were rapidly invested in tearing that fence down. Yes. Getting it on board. It's, you know, and, and from a, from a, a societal standpoint, I think something that, that the riverboats did probably more than almost any other force in the 19th century was that they brought this elevated level of grandeur into the hills on a regular basis that, that otherwise would have barely been conce even conceived of. True, true. Um, and, and I'm sure because they, you know, they talk about everyone coming out to meet the boats and, and, um, and I'm sure it was a bit of a, you know, almost, you know, Christmas morning of what's going to be on the boat, you know, for goods to, to buy and that, that kind of thing. Um, and it allowed, it really went a long ways to allow settlement and establishment of various um, cities uh, in the interior of the region. We talk a lot about being, you know, the upland uh, plateau and um, there were very few roads, no railroads, and um, the interior really was dependent on these steamboats and keelboats as well in order to um, make any progress. And <laughs> it was a great time to fill your eggs. Yeah. <laughs> touche, touche. That was uh, in the, the great, this is a great, great article. Uh, White River articles by John Quincy Wolf Sr., Early Days in the White River, uh, thanks to lion.edu. And just some, some wonderful references and, and memories and uh, the the fact that you know a reference to the the dining room on one side of the hall the bar on the other the fact that the space was stocked uh with candy apples oranges lemons pineapples raisins and figs that were for sale and the other side of the hall the preparation of eggnog mint juleps rock and rye cocktails sour toddies and other mixed and fancy drinks involving the use of sugar rock candy lemons whiskey nutmegs spices and not very much water. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I like that. And when you think about it, you know, the the idea of pineapples and figs in the interior of the Ozarks in the 1800s, it really right. shows just how interconnected transportation was even at that point. It does. And it, it's something that the... In terms of my own personal family memories um, that the railroad did for us in Southern Iowa at the turn of the 20th century. And, you know, the, there's, there is a couple of, a couple of notes um, from, from both sides of my, on my mom's side of the family in regards to Lucas, 
uh, in, in Sheraton, Lucas County, Iowa. And one of them was that my great grandpa, um, my, my grandma's dad, all the kids, and they lived back in a holler, uh, a very small home on the side of the side of the mountain. It wasn't a mountain, but it's definitely the side of the ridge. And um, one time he went to went to town, and the railroad had brought in bananas, <laughs> and uh, he bought um, the entire um, whatever you call it, the entire cluster. Uh huh. The entire cluster that you know like 50 60 70 pounds of 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 banana uh and brought it home because it was such a treat and he wanted his his kids to be able at least once to be able to eat all the bananas that they wanted and one one a, a separate clump of bananas had been brought in uh, at, at, at some point in there and a, um, a Latin American uh, tarantula fell out of the clump <laughs> and they were so fascinated that they built not my family but someone in Sheraton uh, build him a, a terrarium and uh, put him in the storefront window of the uh, probably Piper's I'm not sure I'm guessing it was Piper's grocery store which is still there it's a candy <laughs> store that's uh, and I think and put the put the you you could go by and see the pet tarantula that had fallen out of the banana clump uh, cluster. <laughs> so there was that. But the other thing is that in uh, late November, early December, you could, um, as, as a result of the the trains coming from the east coast, you could purchase fresh oysters um, from the Atlantic packed in ice and those the the reason that uh oyster dishes made their way into the christmas menu by around you know 1890 to 1900 and you know this was you know, a, a tradition by 1910 in southern mm -hmm. iowa yeah and so many people you know oyster dressing and and uh People wonder, well, why? Why? And mm -hmm. it really does come down to those almost random fats that they were brought in by train, and and mm -hmm. so very much that was happening with steamboats beforehand. Yes, you know, is, you know your your pineapple, your your lemons and oranges and things that would not have been available, and then just the um just the experience i mean the this this reference again in the article uh the the, the steamboat josie harry um, built in pittsburgh at the cost of fifty five thousand dollars cabins were carpeted in silk velvet at the cost of adult eleven dollars a yard carried the first electric lighting system ever used on the river and this was in the 1880s yeah um, which is just about the same time that Edison first strung <laughs> lights in New York City. Yes. Uh, her bell weighed 1,800 pounds. The clapper was 110 pounds. Um, 
and the uh, the whistle, uh, so the owner said, could be heard fifty miles away. Wow. Uh, she was regarded as the most the most beautiful steamboat the writer ever saw. Um, and in 1893, she was destroyed by fire 16 miles below Memphis. And that that was the uh, fate of a lot of of ships. And that may bring us to perhaps the mm. most tragic steamboat incident um, in American history. And to this day is the largest military maritime disaster of all time in America. Yes, which is the Sultana. And yes. uh, the Sultana was, was a, side, a side wheel steamboat uh, built in Cincinnati uh, mm -hmm. in February of 1863. Uh, three decks tall, 260 feet long, approximately 70 feet wide almost the size of a football field yes and uh built for the new orleans cotton trade and spent her first two years carrying troops and supplies up and down the mississippi river for the union army until vicksburg was captured in july of 1863. Mm -hmm. now i thought this was interesting then after that uh, carried cotton and goods and passengers between new orleans uh and her and the home port of st louis and that is interesting because the majority of river traffic, of commercial river traffic, was stopped during the war. Yeah. And but, but some things had to get through and, right. and for <laughs> troops. So and and the other thing um, <laughs> in a, in an interesting structure, um, the the proverbial prize, and in some cases, the literal prize, went to the fastest steamboats. Yes. Uh, there was a, I, I think it would be fair to say that there's a great deal of machismo involved in terms of uh, who can get their steamboat there first. Yes. <laughs> Very much so. And something that I did not know until we were reviewing these articles was that um, the symbol of a speedy steamboat was a set of elk antlers. I had I had read that before. That and uh, and the Sultana had had gotten her elk antlers, and they were uh, prominently displayed. So if you saw the saw the elk antlers, you knew you were on a fast boat. <laughs> didn't didn't know elk were, were so fast no no well uh, presumably that mm. <clears throat> but the the sultana disaster uh unfortunately was largely overshadowed by everything else that was happening in the nation at the same time yes um and in kind of faded uh, in part i think because the ship itself ultimately was grounded and and ended up buried in a field uh because of right. the changing course of the river well and you know i think the so 
you know what we're what we're dealing with is you know all of this is is coming in in late april of 1865 and mm -hmm. the the events that precipitated the disaster was the end of the war yes i mean this is in in just day literally days after uh lee's surrender um uh, prisoner of war camps are, are liberated in the south union troops who had been held prisoner were being uh, paroled home and the army was, was paying steamboats to take the the soldiers upriver right and um basically then of course that led to incentive to put as many soldiers on the steamboat that you could and and the, the, the was overcrowded vastly overweighted uh in terms because she was also carrying cargo she was carrying cargo civilian uh passengers a full crew 20 some people in the crew um plus approximately what 2000 roughly so, 2000 just to 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 set this stage to help people realize that this was a disaster waiting to happen um the carrying capacity of the sultana was 376 passengers and 80 to 85 crew members mm -hmm. that what was that's who was supposed to be on board considering the fact that they were getting paid per head they just kept adding people uh, and they knew they were overloading the, the boat. Right. There's there's, you know, the accounts that uh, at various times, you, you know, they'd, you know, something would be catch people's interest on one side of the ship or other, you know, either another boat or something on shore. And all of them would rush to that side and the captain was worried they were going to capsize. And the. The, the numbers for the Sultana when she left Vicksburg uh, was 1,960 former prisoners, 22 guards, 85 crew members, and 70 paying passengers, with a total of 2,137 on board. Where the full capacity was less than 500. Yes. Yeah. And so, and that. <clears throat> is and of course the the fact that uh, the the other the other issue the the sultana had been having boiler issues the boiler issues had been resolved uh in <clears throat> in vicksburg but what appears to have happened was that they did not get enough water back in the boilers right and, basically ran into a dry spot and the 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 four boilers that were set up uh did not have enough water in them and first of all they were having to run hot uh to push that kind of load upstream and then as the and then they had unloaded a massive amount of of, of cargo which you would think um would help the <laughs> they uh, had reached Memphis and they had unloaded 300,000 pounds of sugar. Yeah, I mean, uh -huh. the, 
the capacity is just amazing. It is. Now, you would think that would help because it would lighten the boat. However, what it did was that it further, and it presumably that the 300,000 pounds of sugar was uh, on the main deck, which was keeping the ship or the boat from rocking heavily with so many people on uh, the upper decks. Mm -hmm. And instead, the removal of that 300,000 pounds caused the boat to be more um to rock more precipitously with right. the people moving around and so what appears to have happened is that there was a, enough of a list to drain a portion of the water uh out of probably the uh the the furthest starboard boiler and then but the the heat remained the same to the point that that boiler heated to to red hot and then as the boat rocked gently back, uh, the remaining portion of the water rushed in, was converted instantly to incredibly high pressure steam and the boiler exploded. Right. And ultimately three, three of them uh, uh, exploded and um, basically, Machinery started falling and crushing it people. Was, it was the water uh, around two a.m. on mm-hmm. the morning, twenty-sixth. Uh, the Sultana was about seven miles north of Memphis um, when the boilers exploded, and uh, the blast ripped uh, the boat apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, went at a 45 degree angle, ripping apart the center of the main cabin, destroying the middle of the Texas cabin, uh, which is the section that includes the crew quarters, and sheared off the back two thirds of the pilot house. I, I mean, descriptions are very much what you, you know, thinking of when you hear about the Titanic. Um, it, it, I mean, it, it, it essentially broke the boat in half instantly, from what we yeah. can tell. Um, and then another, another steamboat was nearby um, and started basically throwing anything that would float into the water for people that were being tossed into the water to hang on to. And they did, yeah. in fact, some of them uh, floated all the way down to Memphis um, yeah. on, on debris. Right. I just thrown in. The, um... And the the Bostona number two was the, came down river, um, and, and and rescued approximately 150 people, and the the you know seven miles south Memphis already knew that a disaster has occurred because they'd seen it light up the sky. Right, but they could they couldn't respond immediately because the boats that were moored there the boilers had to heat before they were able to go upstream. Right. Um, 7 a.m., uh, the still still burning remnant of the Sultana floated in amongst uh, the, the flooded trees atop Hen Island, which is a few miles northwest of Memphis. Um, and, you know, and, and not long after that, then sank. Yes. Oh, 
it was, yeah, I mean, just the the loss of life. I mean, we're we're dealing with uh, one thousand forty seven Union soldiers dead, um, and and one hundred and twenty two crew members and and civilians. Yes, uh, amazingly, you know, amazingly, few of the of the rescued uh, is they they were able to get them to five different hospitals. Um, mm -hmm. And very few of, of the ones that were that were rescued and got and made it to the hospitals actually passed away. So, um, you know, it's you know a testament to to the uh, response that was given. Um, right. But it is the largest military-related maritime disaster in American history. It and, is. Over time, the Sultana ended up in a field, basically silted over in a field on in Arkansas, on the Arkansas side. Which is really phenomenal. Of course, the uh, I believe the Arabia uh, on the on the Missouri River, a similar yeah. fate in terms of you go uh, you go hunting for a shipwreck in a soybean field. Exactly. <laughs> because rivers move. There you go, rivers move. And I, I think this is an incredibly powerful quote. If the Sultana was a battle, the number of Union deaths would put it in the 11th place uh, compared to Union losses suffered in other battles. Yep. Yeah, uh, it was basically the lar 11th largest battle of the Civil War, if you considered it a battle. And, and then goes on to say, um, if we consider deaths versus survivors, the Sultana disaster would rank number one with a death survival ratio worse than any battle for either side during the entire war. Wow. That, that really does put it in perspective and should be, should be remembered more than it is. It uh, should. It really should. It, it really should. Um, and is you know really does illustrate not only the the absolute positive things that that steamboat travel offered, um, but the risk. Uh, there there was a lot of risk in uh, forging civilization into the region. Mm -hmm. There was there was and um, you know that's those lives on so many levels ultimately that were that were given not only in war not only in particular steamboat accidents but just in general as our nation you know the the creation of of the american nation in the 19th century birthed to such a large degree the infrastructure and the comparatively speaking very easy lives that we today take for granted very much so, and perhaps that's a good place to end tonight. I we think, think so. Yeah, we thank everybody, and don't forget to check out upcoming events and merchandise at darkosarts.com and paranormalsciencelab.com. Thank you again to Always Buying Books and Beard Engine Brewing Company for helping to bring the Darko's Arts to everyone. On the next episode, we're going to be discussing the surprising connections between the Ozarks, 
Egypt, and Egyptian mythology. Catch the Dark Ozarks podcast on Branson Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Substack, or about any other podcast platform. Thank you, everyone. And remember, there are no easy answers in the Dark Ozarks.